Welcome to the ETAP Podcast, a service of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Each month, we'll provide information and insight into environmental issues important to state transportation officials. Young Matthew Query spent hours on road trips across the American West, wondering how highways fit into the diverse landscapes that surrounded him. Recently, state DOTs, as well as the federal government, have increasingly begun to take up the same question. Over the past 10 years, the rate at which legislation concerning roadside vegetation appears before Congress has more than doubled that of the previous 10, with over 40 proposed bills on the topic crossing the House floor. State DOTs have taken up the cause as well, recognizing that past philosophies on roadside vegetation management had potentially hindered the growth of critical ecosystems. Our guest today is Matthew Query, a landscape design and research fellow at the Ray, a public-private philanthropic partnership that functions as a real-life, real-time laboratory for transportation innovations in Georgia. For his thesis, Matthew partnered with the Ray to produce new classifications of the most beneficial and well-rounded roadside vegetation systems, which can now be used to guide Georgia's efforts in sustainability and harmonious roadside ecology. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Your thesis touches on the important role that roadside vegetation plays in a sustainable ecosystem. Tell us a bit about the benefits of best practices in roadside vegetation management, if you would, please. The roadside landscape, often called the right-of-way, in general is right of pavement. So when you're driving down the road, all of that space that the state or the county or the federal government maintains is often forgotten about. And best practices have been developed. We've had different approaches throughout history. And we really are coming into, I would say, a new chapter of how we view the roadside and really seeing it as an asset more than a maintenance burden. So just starting with that mindset is one of the big improvements about how we view and manage roadside vegetation moving forward. In general, uh, managers are trying to think more about habitat and ecosystems, stormwater management. How do we make sure that our rivers and streams aren't getting polluted from the car emissions or the rubber bits and running into the streams and the air quality? Ideas that have been involved in other parts of uh, environmental management, planning, design, words like sustainability, resiliency, those concepts are becoming more of the day-to-day management practice in the right-of-way and when we view and think about roadside vegetation. Now, your work, a lot of it, or maybe all of it, has been down in Georgia. Obviously, the habitat and the, uh, the ecosystem that exists in Georgia is not the same as you'd find in other parts of the country. How do you account for variations based on climate in different parts of the nation? Uh, That's a great question, and it comes up all the time. And I think managers realize their unique climate, the plants that are native to their area. And again, in general, you think of it in broad terms of what are the ecosystems of this place? What are the native plants of this place? What is appropriate here. You know, obviously a road in Maine is going to look different than a road in Texas, different than California or Georgia. And so I think everyone involved just has that 
ecology hat on, so to speak, and just tries to do their best to do what's appropriate for that place. The concepts are broad in terms of thinking about ecosystems and how roads are often the driver of habitat fragmentation. So how can the right-of-way somehow be viewed and redesigned so that it can maybe bring habitats back together? So it can truly be a not just a transportation corridor, but uh, an ecosystem corridor for animals and other parts of nature, plants even. And so that can take place anywhere in the country. It will just obviously have a different look and feel based on where you're at. Again, regardless of where you are in the country, while it may vary in terms of the types of vegetation and, and such that you have along the right of way, the importance of roadside vegetation can't be dismissed. What are some of the risks of disregarding the importance of roadside vegetation? I think in many ways, again, going back to that idea that the roadside is an asset, that it is in the public good. I mean, it is public land. It's the right of way managed by these government agencies. And it should be viewed as an asset. And when we view it as just this maintenance burden, let's just mow it, clear it, take down the trees, spray the weeds, you know, all in the name of safety, which is very important. But at the same time, are our roads really as safe as they could be? I mean, we still have tremendous amounts of accidents and deaths on our roads every year. And so how can the roadside vegetation management be part of the process of changing that? And so the peril of not viewing the roadside as an asset, it's just underutilized. In my thesis, I talk about trying to make roadsides more productive. But for many state DOTs, even using that word productive, producing something kind of scares them because, again, when you talk about making money off of land, then there's politics and who gets the money and where does it go. And But all of that can be answered if the net benefit is having this not just beautiful, but productive in terms of, I would even say for our human interest, how many hours of our lives are spent driving down these roads? And they're often very barren, <laughs> uninteresting places. So why wouldn't you want it to be a prettier place? And on top of that, it's better for pollinators. It's better for stormwater. Dare I say it's better for carbon sequestration. And then on top of that, the rubber meets the road, to use that pun intentionally, is can I make it cheaper? Can we get a bang for our buck and get all of these benefits and at the same time not cost any more? So to me, in my work at the Ray and here in Georgia, and with my research, it's really just trying to advocate for that broader idea of this is an asset that we are not utilizing as best that we could. And here, here's an example of ways that it can be better, and we'll continue to find even more. Mentioning your work at the Ray, tell us a bit more about what you're doing there and some of the conclusions that you've drawn about the future of roadside vegetation. So the Ray is an organization and a place. It's an 18-mile corridor, a proving ground here in West Georgia on Interstate 85 between Auburn, Alabama and Atlanta, Georgia. And we have a partnership with our nonprofit and the state DOT to try new things. And so we're, we're researching how we can do better in terms of 
establishing pollinator meadows, managing stormwater runoff. How can we take degraded slopes that every state deals with, those bare patches of soil, either from tractor mower tearing the turf away or just a slope washing out? How do you revegetate that in a way that is sustainable, that uses native plants. And then again, the more exciting things that I think people are starting to wake up to, the the idea of productive landscapes. Can we produce something in this space? Because there are tens of millions of acres in the United States in this right-of-way. I forget the number in Georgia. I'll find it later. But it is a tremendous amount of land. And so even just thinking of it as a way to put roadside solar. So at the Ray, we have the only roadside solar in Georgia. Uh, We have approving of a a company in, in France that has solar panels you can drive on. We have rubberized tires that we've put into the road as part of the asphalt in a test to prove that using recycled tires in the road material is actually You know, it's recycling that product, but it lasts longer. It's less wear and all these benefits. But again, our goal is to really just be a proving ground to take the burden of trying new things that might be expensive or unknown, do it on a small scale and prove to the Georgia DOT. But also we're working with other states. I believe we have at least eight other states that we have official partnerships with. Uh, We really view the Ray as something that can be in every state to help reimagine these corridors to be safer, greener, and uh, better for the environment. We talked earlier about some of the differences around the country in terms of ecosystems, but even within those 18 miles, I imagine there are some significant differences as you start getting into the more built-up areas. Can we be talking about roadside vegetation and, and taking advantage of that? in more urban areas as well as less developed areas? There is definitely a difference between the city and the rural area. How you connect with the land outside of the right-of-way is very important, having that context sensibility. Our 18 miles isn't in metro Atlanta. It's near two small towns, LaGrange and West Point. So we don't have the true big city urban interface on our 18 miles. But you definitely have to think differently. So much of that infrastructure is all concrete. There's less vegetation. You have to think of things that aren't sometimes fun to talk about, but encampments. And when homeless people live in this space, is it safe for them? Is it safe for cars? How do you keep it safe, not just for the cars, but for everyone interacting with it? But yes, in the city, uh, there are definitely things to think about much differently than in the country. You know, a lot of what we're looking at in terms of our pollinators is how we can improve agricultural outcomes. Blueberries need bees. And so if I can make a meadow that encourages pollinators and it's right next to a big field that's going to benefit from that, then in general, it's a net positive for everyone, especially in a state like Georgia, where agriculture is our number one industry. So you definitely have to think differently based on the context. That's a good point. Uh, But there are still exciting things that can be done regardless of that context. The work you're doing in Georgia, obviously, 
is going to most directly benefit Georgia, but it can also benefit, as you mentioned, you're working with other state DOTs. What are some of the lessons that you've learned there that these other DOTs can take advantage of? What things have you come across that do have application elsewhere? Well, we were really excited in April when um, the White House and the Department of Transportation put out a memorandum specifically about leveraging alternative uses of the highway right-of-way. And in that guidance in April, they talk a lot about things that we're doing at the Ray. One of them is energy production and transmission. I mentioned we have a kilowatt solar array on the side of the highway here in our corridor, but we have, uh, with a partnership with the University of Texas at Austin, developed a roadside solar mapping tool that states can use to specifically look at the highway in their state using a complex GIS sorting. And it can, on the other end of the analysis, tell you, you have this many acres that are appropriate and ripe for you to put in roadside solar in your state. It took us many years uh, to get Georgia Power, to get the DOT, to allow us to put our solar array in Georgia, even though from the federal level, roadside solar has been approved and advocated for for years. Uh, Massachusetts, Oregon, Maryland are states that have had roadside solar before Georgia. But our organization and our work brought that to the state. And now working with this new tool, we are actively going out to other states and say, look, if we want electric cars, where is the power going to come from? We all hear these stories about how the grid in America is stressed and not very resilient. If we have thousands of electric cars that we want to put on the road, where's the power going to come from? And so why can't you think of it holistically and say this transportation corridor can account for that? It can produce the energy and it can transmit the energy even within this corridor. So you're not having to worry about getting into public land. It's not some weird pipeline corridor project that takes decades to get done. Again, using the roadside as this asset, this untapped resource is what we're all about. And so one example that has already started uh, going to other states is our roadside solar advocacy work. You mentioned how not that long ago, roadside vegetation management basically involved mowing the grass so that it didn't get too high and and become a safety issue. I'm curious, in some of the, the dealings that you've had, are you finding that state DOTs are hiring people who do have expertise in this area of roadside vegetation management and how you can utilize that whole ecosystem for whether it's pollinators, wildlife, vegetation, et cetera? DOTs are big organizations. There are people who've dedicated their career to it. They're definitely, we're not the only people thinking this way. But at the same time, our founder, Ray Anderson, always said, government is never going to lead when it comes to thinking green, doing better, innovating. We use that every day. We remember his words as we're pushing gently or not so gently (laughs) better (laughs) because there are systems that are in place that work and people say, this is working for me. Why would I change? And so we definitely come up against some 
pushback. People love to cut the grass as much as as they can, but that gets to a broader cultural idea of the love of lawn in America. And people want to see some sort of golf course aesthetic when they drive down the road for some reason. So I also try to advocate to change that mindset every day. But I also tell our partners, my background is in horticulture. I have a bachelor's and master's in horticulture and now a master's of landscape architecture. I worked in botanical gardens and national parks for 10 years. But I tell everyone with our projects, we're not making gardens on the side of the highway. That is not a sustainable maintenance practice. (laughs) So it's finding the balance of bringing in more beauty, bringing in more plants, but not creating more of a headache not creating more of a maintenance need than already exists, but trying to do it more efficiently with ecology, the environment, climate change, and then safety. I mean, again, we really haven't viewed roads and roadside landscapes. We really haven't thought of them that differently, I would say, since the 80s. It really hasn't changed that much of how we build a new road or maintain the road. And again, highways are not the safest place. People die every day on our roads. So we really have a mission of zero deaths. Can we design a road that it's safe for humans and animals? How do you make the road accommodate those crossings that need to happen? Again, these hard infrastructure barriers that are fragmenting ecosystems, you need to think about the bugs and bunnies and the deer and the, you know, and so... Because you can't ignore it. You know, you see those deer crossing, they're going to cross there. <laughs> it's not if, it's when. So again, we're trying to view the road in this holistic fashion. You're talking about how things changing over since the 1980s. One of the things that I recall that was sort of innovative, and this probably goes back 30 or more years, was state DOTs saying, hey, rather than just having grass on the roadway, especially on the median where you have a wide median, planting wildflowers that are native to that particular area, number one, it's more beautiful to look at when they're in bloom. Two, it's less expensive because you don't have to cut those uh, like you do grass uh, every few months. Is that something that's part of a responsible ecosystem for a highway right-of-way? Oh, 100%. And that that goes all the way back to Lady Bird Johnson. And um, there was a legislation in 1964 specifically about uh, roadside beautification. A lot of it had to do in the 60s. It was the Wild West and there was no regulation on how many billboards you could have or if you could put the car dump right next to the road. So roads were very full of trash and signs. And from the federal level, they knew they needed to give some policy to that. But famously, it was also about wildflowers. And we've had legislation, every federal highway project has to use a certain percentage of funds for native planting. I would say every state has some sort of wildflower program. Some are just more successful, iconic. Some are better than others. They're not all created equal. But we definitely advocate for that. And, you know, one of the main projects in the landscape lab that, as I say, the vegetation part of the work at the Ray that I'm specifically working on every day is meadow making 
for a variety of reasons. Reducing maintenance, like you said, you only mow the meadow once, you don't mow it. There are parts of the state of Georgia that are mowed eight times a year. And so just the cost and the the carbon emission from the tractors, if you take it from eight to one, that's a huge benefit just in that alone. But we also have pine trees that grow in our ditches. We have kudzu, we have Johnson grass. There's other invasive, aggressive weeds that have to be managed. And sometimes mowing isn't is the easiest way to manage those weeds. But reducing mowing is definitely a goal for a variety of reasons. And wildflowers are a great way to do that. Another option that we're trying to explore more is fiber production. Could you grow uh, a tall grass that could be cut almost like hay and then it be turned into a single use napkin, for example? But again, that's part of where I'm at in Georgia. We have a tremendous lumber paper industry here. And so, again, putting your creative thinking cap on and saying, how can I work in these different industries? How can this space be used in more than just cutting the grass? You talked about wildlife and and not just bunnies and small animals, but deer you had mentioned as, as something that obviously is a concern over large parts of the country. And you get out West, you have even bigger animals that are trying to get from one side of the highway to another. A few weeks ago, there was a an article in the New York Times talking about wildlife crossings and how important they have become. Is that something that more DOTs are trying to make accommodations for so that these animals do have an opportunity to cross the highway safely, not only for themselves, but for the drivers who are on the highways and don't hit them? 100%. And the, in the West, the, the wide open West with uh, elk and the larger animals, as you were saying, there are some beautiful examples of wildlife crossings that go over the highway that instead of being a bridge for cars, it's a land bridge planted for animals. But it can be even less sophisticated. It can be going under the highway where you allow mountain lions or even raccoons, possums, like we, anytime you have that wildlife interaction with a car at a high speed, good things don't happen. So it's definitely on our list. Again, uh, one of our goals is zero deaths. And so exploring uh, what that means, can we be more sophisticated with how the car knows that an animal is approaching? Does it have to be this physical infrastructure? It can be something more subtle. And, And so we're definitely exploring different options. But yes, land bridges and wildlife crossings are being considered by many states. I would say the the states in the West have more projects of that scale than, you know, I don't know of any land bridges in Georgia. But again, there are other ways to have the wildlife cross the road safely. As you look to the future, Matthew, what are some of the things that you see on the horizon? What are some of the things that you're excited about on this topic? For me, one of the most exciting topics that we're, we're just starting to work on is how it relates to carbon and carbon emissions in this corridor. Can we account for all of the car emissions that go down the road every day? Can I design a planting that I, with confidence, can say is taking that CO2 out of the air? Thinking about carbon in this way is only going to increase as the years go by because of climate change. So using this underutilized resource of the roadside in a fight against climate change, quite frankly, thinking of it in that regard. 
Thank you so much, Matthew, for being part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.